Listen up, everybody. On Tuesday, March 19th, 4.15 Eastern Time, that's 1.15 here local in LA, I'll be hosting a webinar to discuss Cambria's two new ETFs, the Cambria Tactical Yield ETF, ticker TYLD, and the Cambria Micro and Small Cap Shareholder Yield ETF, ticker MYLD. Head over to Cambria's Twitter and LinkedIn pages to find the registration link. Once again, that's March 19th at 4.15 Eastern Time. Look forward to seeing you. Carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risk factors, charges, and expenses before investing. This and other information can be found by visiting our website at www.cambryfunds.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing or sending money. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of capital. The Cambry ETFs are distributed by Alps Distributors, Inc., member FINRA, FINRA. Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, podcast listeners. It is late May. We're getting ready to roll into summer. And so we've had a whole slew of great podcast episode guests with most recently James Montier, Ken Fisher, Olivia Judson, Brian Singer. So it's time for a radio show. You guys were emailing in and pining for Jeff. So Jeff, welcome back. What's going on? Did you feel a little lost in the woods at not having been on the show in a while? You know, I mean, I, I've been enjoying my time in the sun away from this. It's okay. just so much limelight. I have such a big fan base out there. It's hard for me to live in all that sort of just glory. Well, listeners, as you know, we're getting ready to head to Europe. So maybe we should bring along a portable recorder and record some live live from Europe shows. Great. I'll let you do that while I'm on the beach. Give you a little Uzo, a little Chianti. <laughs> what are we talking about today? What's going on in the world? Uh, well, why don't we start off by you reminding everybody about the travel in case they want to try and get a hold of you over in Europe. As always, ping us. This is a fun trip. This is a wedding, college friend, but as always, love meeting up with people. We'll be in Greece and Italy, maybe London for a little bit, but we'll probably be back in Europe later this summer. So TBD. But exciting, except for the part where I'll be confined to an airline cabin with my one-year-old. First time over like an hour on the plane, I'm quite nervous. But at least you're bringing a nanny, though. That's going to help out significantly. My nanny is named Jack Daniels. <laughs> Your manny. Yeah, my manny. <laughs> All right, so let's let's do this. Let's chat about a few of your tweets, and then let's dive into some listener Q&A. By the way, sound. podcast listeners, I switched to a new podcast app. I'm trying out Breaker in my never-ending search for a podcast app that lets you rate shows. So you guys try out Breaker if you know of something better. Well, ex explain to the listeners why you like it better like you did me the other I day. I don't know that I like it better, but it's the only one that even allows for likes at all. So you can sort shows by what people are really enjoying. But it's still pretty new where the likes aren't it's to just a heart. They're not totaling that much right now, correct? I mean, I saw... No, yeah, I don't know how many users they have, but anyway, I'm. it's it's a never-ending search. All right, so let's... Uh, number one, real quick. We just did Montier. I thought it was a great episode. Anything stand out in particular to you from that podcast? I mean, he's fun. You know, that there's the type of guest where 
I could just push play and he could go for an hour and just shut it off or two hours or five hours. And I've corresponded with James over the years many times and very familiar with his research, read all his books. If you want a great introduction to behavioral investing, he's really written the kind of Bible. It's like 700 pages, but there's a shorter version. He did one of the little books um, on behavioral investing. Jason Zweig's got a really wonderful behavioral investing book too, but um, they're both great books. And I think we posted it on the show notes. There's a really fun behavioral test that has about 20 questions that shows you just how many of those crazy behavioral sort of weirdness that everyone has. And you don't think you have them. And you take the test and you're like, oh my God, that's embarrassing. Anyway, but we talked a lot. Of, if you haven't listened to the episode, go listen to it. But we talked a lot about performance and market valuations, but also process. And he had a really good quote in the, in the podcast where he said something along the lines of process is behavioral self-defense. And behavioral meaning there's so many dumb things we want to do in investing, but if you have some sort of codified process, it makes life so much easier. And let me give you a good example. This is a conversation that I have almost every day with an investor and not just individual. I had this conversation with a professional investor about a week ago, but it seeps into every single area of investing. And we've talked about this a hundred times on the podcast, but just to tie it back and was chatting with this very well-known investor. And he's like, you know, we're walking through the funds and he goes, okay, Matt, I, I just want to hear about what's, what's your best fund. And I said, well, which one has the best performance? And as soon as he said that, my heart just sank. And the reason my heart sank was because I knew where this was going. And as an asset manager and fiduciary, there's two ways to answer that question. The one is tell them what they want to hear. So I can say, you know what? We managed this fund. It was up 20% two years ago. It was up 30% last year. It's doing awesome this year. This is why it's awesome. This is why you should go buy it. And of course, they'll go buy a big slug. And this guy, I mean, a lot of these institutions are moving in $10 million plus portions. But one, you're selling a little bit of snake oil. And two, you're acting like all these funds have in salesmen for the last 30 years they're telling people what they want to hear regardless if it's right for them. And then second, it's not going to be a good investor because it's going to be hot money. So the conversation continued. Of course, I can't help myself, so I'm not going to play that game. So I said, okay, so just to be clear, when you're talking about performance, like, do you mean over what time frame? Do you mean like a month, a year, inception? Do you mean absolute terms? Do you mean relative to a benchmark? He goes, no, no, no. He's basically, I forget what he said, but he's basically like, I'm not a noob, but like, I want the best risk-adjusted returns. So that sounds slightly more sophisticated, but it's not. And this is where I always almost get hung up on. I say, okay, I can tell you, but I'm assuming, you know, because you're a professional investor and you know better, assuming that you're asking because you're looking for the fund that has the worst trailing three-year performance. Because as we all know, asset classes go and strategies go in and out of favor. And so if you just believe in that process of the asset strategy in the first place, then what you probably want to be investing in is the one that has the worst performance, right? Yeah, mean reverse. And it's just quiet. And he's like, well, no, why would I want that? And I, you know, this, this is just where it goes. But the whole point is if investors could blind themselves to charts and performance of what's happened in the last year or three years and just said, look, this is what my process is going to be, they'd be infinitely better. But everyone gets attracted by that shiny little light that whatever the hot 
story and fun is of the day. And, and so I think Montier really spoke to this with his, his comments, but particularly that having a process really keeps you from, and there's so much research. I mean, we've cited it a million times on this podcast already about how the institutions, all the academic literature shows that they make all the same mistakes. They just, they allocate to funds that have great trailing performance and sell the ones that have horrible trailing performance. And they would have been much better staying with the old fund when they made the switch. Why does that, I'm assuming this individual is obviously probably very intelligent and has been around the markets for quite a long time. Given that, how does that market belief still manifest? How's it still around? I think there's a number of reasons. One is in our podcast, we did on the investment period, which the article is still in production, but should be out soon. Listeners, people love spending all the time. Like I go on TV, I was on Bloomberg prior to this show and the pre-call is like, hey, you want to talk about Turkey? Turkish lira is getting cheap. By the way, we should go over to Turkey when we're in Europe. It's a, the currency is making life much cheaper to, as a tourist. Stock market's also getting a lot cheaper, by the way. Brian talked about that, I believe. I think he was referencing uh, currencies and I, yeah. think, I think he mentioned the lira. Yeah, it's, it's stock market's probably single digit P at this point. But you know, people love talking about the very tops of the pyramid, but what really matters is you get all the basics right in the first place. And so I, you know, I think a lot of it's the behavioral nature, like it's genetically wired into investing like that. And unfortunately it's not a smart thing to be doing. It just doesn't make sense to me that you'd be around the markets this long and not be able to sort of curb yourself like that. Okay, uh, but, well, but you're still trading options, so <laughs> you have you have some behavioral biases too. It's just different ones, self delusion, delusions of grandeur. <laughs> so, but uh, so we talk about process. Uh, I'll put you on the spot here a little bit. We haven't really prepped for this, but can you think of two, three, four very broad brush processes that would help somebody when they think about what the process is? What does that mean to you? I, I love that you said we didn't prep for this as if we prep for any of the radio show. Well, this particular line of questions. You haven't prepped for this. So yeah, I mean, we've talked about this. My favorite was the article we worked on together. What was it called? Zero budgeting portfolio? Something like that. And the concept was, hey, look, if you were to start your portfolio with a blank piece of paper and write down how you'd invest starting today, and if that doesn't match your current portfolio, then something's out of whack. Ignoring taxes, but most people don't even think about taxes at all anyway. And so that would be a start. So what's what's your base case portfolio? And then what's your base case so policy portfolio, another way to explain it, institutions call it. And then how do you plan on updating it? Are you just going to rebalance once a year and that's it? Done. That's fine. Are you going to make these changes based on XYZ? That's fine too, but try to codify them ahead of time. You know, a lot of people, they have this emotional tie to their old portfolio for whatever reason. And so we were talking about this on Twitter the other day. I said, Hey, go, go type in all your old school mutual funds, these high fee, ridiculous funds into your, uh, there's a website called FX is one, for example, where you can type the funds in and it'll show you cheaper alternatives. And I'm, I'm referring to kind of the buy and hold beta at this point. Obviously we've said a million times that all that matters is net returns after all fees, taxes, expenses, everything all together. So there certainly are funds and strategies that are worth net of fee returns and, and gross expenses, but it's a high bar. So anyway, you know, I think just codifying the process in the first place. And a lot of people, I would say 99% never make that first step. They just shoot from the hip and kind of play it by ear. And that's 
horrible way to invest. Kind of tying back to the question or to the issue of the guy asking you about the best performing fund and one of your possible responses was going to be, well, I assume that's because you want to know, you know which one not to invest in. So the flip side, let's say that you're looking at worst performing funds. Do you commodities? Ascri- okay, keep going. Do you Sorry. ascribe to sort of the the cyclical mindset of things tend to move uh, around, you know, seven year patterns? I mean, do you put any weight on a time frame of being down? No. Or would you but, look purely at just maybe like when the trend has really changed based upon maybe the two hundred day or something like that? The, the longer and deeper, the better, because the longer and deeper it is, the more emotional and psychological damage that's caused all the investors that were involved. Look at Japan. That was two decades of investors that will probably never invest in Japan again. And they went from the biggest bubble we've ever seen to eventually getting cheap a few years ago, if you remember, finally got down to really cheap levels. But by that point, nobody had wanted Japan. Just think about the last few years. Think about all the people. You mentioned Greece or Russia or Brazil. People are like, are you out of your mind? So sometimes it happens on the couple year time frame. Sometimes it happens even longer. I think commodities has been a great example. We've been talking a lot about this year, but even going back to 2016, when we did that article in the first version of the best investment writing, which was our 50% returns coming from emerging markets and commodities. And pretty rarely does it work out that cleanly, but sure enough, what happened the next few years, emerging markets went up 50% and commodities are just now starting to catch hold. But talk about an asset class as an example, in mid-2000s, everyone was piling into commodities. Every person on the planet was launching commodity funds, commodities were going through the roof, and then of course, what happened? You had 10 years of horrible performance. And so it's kind of created this environment where, back to our old sugarood three criteria, hated, cheap, and starting into an uptrend. So you had base metals be the first one to go up, and then energy, precious is kind of lagging, but ags, which is my the one that I always talk about is looks like they're entering to an uptrend, but that's, they've looked that way a couple of times over the past few years. So the, the worse that it's been and the longer it's been, the more it's like a rubber band or a coil. As long as it's, as long as it's not a tiny industry or single stock that those can go to zero pretty easy, but entire countries and sectors and asset classes, that's a lot more rare. Yeah, I mean, but those to me seem like, ironically, the easier investments, the ones that have been down for forever. And if they're beginning to get an uptrend, because it has been so long, I guess I was thinking of what about the ones who have been down three, four years, and they're not getting crushed, they're just underperforming. Do you view those as attractive? Or are they still kind of, because they're not well, extreme? extremes, like are the, you like, nah. the old are not podcast, where he says, you know, there's a lot of simple ways to take, a, take advantage of this value investing is one rebalancing is another one over rebalancing the concept of moving even more into an asset class that's really been getting pummeled but you can codify all those right like you can put you can use value funds that will automatically you know our largest fund does this it buys the 12 cheapest countries in the world so automatically it does that once a year and so that that is a rules-based strategy you could do it with your entire portfolio. So there's there's a number of ways to think about it. You're an options guy. So you could also say, hey, look, next time that we have an asset class that's down three years in a row, it's only happened at this point now six times. The fifth and sixth were commodities and emerging markets starting in 2016, but may not happen again for a long time. But if it is, you say, you know what, I'm going to buy two-year options, leaps. Mm-hmm. And you know if it doesn't work out, it cost me 1% or something. If it does work out, I, I make uh, some good money. But 
you could do that. If you do that with sectors or industries, you probably want it to be even deeper and longer because those are more concentrated. So we used to do those articles where we talked about coal stocks and uranium stocks. And we didn't do the update this year because agriculture, I don't think was down five in a row, but anyway, so, but, but those are things, there's a lot of approaches you could take. And again, shooting from the hip is probably the worst, but you could take ones where you say, you know what, I'll over rebalance. You could take ones where say, I'll do small option positions and, or you could say, I'll do trend following approach and buy these when they start a trend. All those are valid, I think. All right. So it just boils down to process. And as I'm sure you will say, it's not just process, it's written down process. And share it, share it with someone, keep you honest. You know what? You've just touched on so many questions that were kind of perfect segues into some of the write-in Q&A. Good. In fact, in fact I'm, we've missed a few, but given that last one about share it with somebody, I'm going to jump ahead to the Q&A. We'll come back to another discussion point. All right, real quick right now. Do you suggest that someone have a second opinion on their financial plan, much as someone would get a second opinion for major surgery? Even if a client really trusts their advisor, it just seems prudent to have a second set of eyes look at the plan. Thoughts? Yeah, why not get a second and third opinion? I mean, the challenge there, I think, is you know, a lot of financial advisors, I guess you could do it on a per hour basis, but if you don't have an advisor and you want one, you should absolutely find one you're comfortable with. And so there's no reason not to interview five, 10 of them and understand their process, understand how they work with people, fees, everything. And because you probably learn more about the profession as well in every meeting to the extent they'll do proposals or you can do them per hour where they give you plans. Absolutely. Why not? Because you start to learn, particularly for people who haven't been through it and are kind of uninformed you probably pick up knowledge in each of those meetings. You say, oh, well, that guy's kind of full of it because he said X, Y, Z. And the next guy, you say, oh, well, he clearly has conflicts of interest because of this. But if you just went with your buddy who happened to be your neighbor and it was the first one, you probably wouldn't know those things. I'll take the counter position just to see what you say. All right, let's say you're getting a coronary bypass. There's really pretty much one way to fix that. If you kind of get creative, you know, chances are it won't work out well. But let's say you have two advisors both of their very different market approaches. You know, one's buy and hold long term, one's trend in the more short immediate term. Um, their styles could be contradictory at face value, but over the longer term, they're both going to do well. So if you get advice from both of them on the same portfolio, one could look at it and say this is just a you know piece of crap. The other thinks it's better, and it leaves you kind of stuck in the middle, wondering what do I do? Because it's not an issue of it's right or wrong; it's potentially just a style differential over different time periods or whatnot. So you're, you're I don't know if your example is apples to apples. It's more like apples to oranges. Because if you go and get a coronary bypass or not, you're dead or you're not dead. So I, I'm not. That example is is a little binary. Whereas the financial advisor, it's more like interviewing trainers, where you said, okay, well, this guy is going to make me run. And this other guy is going to make me do uh, weight training. And this third is a holistic approach where they're going to focus on diet, but also do yoga. Like, well, are all those better than nothing? Yeah, probably. Will they all help? Sure. I'm, I'm sure they will. But are they different styles getting to the same thing? Yeah. A, a doctor, you know, I think it's a, an accurate representation. If you said, hey, I'm going to get four opinions on should I have this heart surgery? And maybe one is a total quack and said, no, you should go meditate until your heart problems go away. And that's probably not going to work. But the other three said, yes, absolutely, you should. You know, I, I see, the, I don't know why it would hurt 
to not interview 10 people to find the one that you trust. And chances are, once you go with someone and, and go with their methodology and world philosophy and everything else, you're not going to, the switching costs are such a pain in the butt. You got to move for many of them, move brokerages, switch accounts. There might be taxable events. Yeah. All the more reason to have, you know, several interviews if you're going to end up getting stuck with one for a while. And I think that's, we've mentioned this before is one of the million dollar investment ideas. There's still not a good way to go find financial advisors because the rating systems with the, the ones they have with like Dr. ZocDoc and all these others is a financial advisor cannot pay to be on one of these platforms where there's testimonials. So a lot of the way this platforms work is they have ratings and they'll set up appointments for potential financial advisors. So if you could figure out a way to have a website that would allow for reviews, but it's even more complicated because the reviews for a lot of people, you know, they may invest or something and not do well. It's just, it's complicated, but there's no listeners. You figure out a good solution. Let me know. I'll invest in it. But there's not a good way to find a financial advisor. I mean, you can go to like the uh, FPA website and search for CFPs, but uh, but other than that, it's a lot of word of mouth. How would you do it personally? Just, word of mouth. That's it. But but again, I'm in the industry, so I know and have that experience. But I, I it's it's complicated. Whatever happened? You were talking about you and Jack. You were going to sit down with somebody mm-hmm. at one point. Um, did y'all ever go th- follow through with that? Yeah, it's confidential. <laughs> We're, right. we're on interview 10 of, of various... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, trying to get my house in order. It's taken a while, these sojourns to Greece. <laughs> All right, let's, uh, let's hit the last tweet, and then we'll go back into the Q&A. Uh, you had an interesting tweet that talked about what matters more, your savings or your return. And it looked at a 10% savings rate uh, with a 6% return versus a 6% savings rate with a 10% return. You want to just kind of walk us through what that was and what you took away from it? You know, everyone wants to focus on returns. That's the sexy part. But starting early and particularly saving in living within your means or not, but but saving is a huge determinant of portfolio value. And the problem is, look, most of us that have lived through our 20s and 30s, you don't have any money. You're just like trying not to drown, right? So it's, it's easy to tell a 20-year-old, yeah, just put away 10% of your salary when they have a hard time paying their credit card bills. So I, I sympathize it with it. But the reality is the earlier you start and the more you save, the better it is. And that's why having automated system like a 401k auto deposit or whatever it is where it takes out your paycheck and you don't even see it is, is a great way to, to save you know, dollar cost average over, over time. But we've done a lot of articles on this general concept where if you remember back the the best way to add yield to the portfolio article where we showed that unless you have basically 10 million, you should be spending zero time on asset allocation and basically spending more time trying to either make a little more money or invest in yourself and, and trying to generate alpha when you have these low pools of capital is really kind of foolish versus trying to get a better job or, or, work harder or more. We'll post this to the show notes, but the chart here that represents the growth curves of the 10% savings and 6% return versus 6% savings and 10% return, it looks like it's about 24 years to where they break even or so. Where the kink happens, and, and listeners, you can visualize this, where savings, or excuse me, the investment returns really start to matter a lot more post-year 20. So if you're investing for the short term, and this is why if you're 80 years old and 
if you need the money and you're not passing this on to your children or foundation or something, you shouldn't be a hundred percent in cat and stocks because chances are one, they're super volatile, but it may or may not make a huge difference in your time frame. Uh, so compounding really works over the long. So if you look at, for example, media loves touting this with Buffett where they're like, Buffett is worth this much money and, he, and all of it came in the last 10 years or whatever. You know, he made 90% of his money after he turned 80, but that's just the power of compounding. So when you make 10% on 50 billion, that's a lot different than when you make it on 50 million. So there's a couple of takeaways. You know, one is that obviously the numbers of return and savings can vary. So that I'm sure there's a calculator out there that shows you the various graphs and sort of landscapes based on what your expectations for returns and savings may be. But the general rules of thumb, starting as early as you can. I mean, if you remember the episode we did with Merriman where he said he gives his children at birth whatever it was, a thousand, ten thousand dollars, but it, it doesn't uh they don't get it till they turn sixty five. So that's solid sixty five years of compounding, which is pretty cool. Anyway, start early, savings matters a lot, the more you can do it. And then returns of course help, but the returns are the one that you can't really control. You can't control the, the economic climate you were born into. If you were born uh, and started your investing career before the 80s and 90s, kudos. You had two decades of just straight up. But if you started investing in late 90s, you had pretty tough road ahead of you for the next decade. And so um, there's th- the biggest thing is you can control, which is savings and starting early and spending your time to invest in yourself, particularly in your 20s and 30s. Can you remember what the Porter rules for investing were? Your 20s are for learning, 30s were for earning, 40s were for investing or something. (laughs) We'll have to look at the show notes. But I think those are all common sense views. What would you say to... People spend way too much time trying to beat the market. That's for sure. Agreed. You just buy our funds and move on. Well, the flip side of that is you're familiar with uh, Ramit Sethi. Yep. He's a uh, great entrepreneur and author. He's a written a course, I will teach you to be rich. And one of the things I remember from Ramit is he talks about how so many of these save more plans talk about, well, if you don't buy that one cappuccino each week, you know, it was at three and a half bucks, it'll add up. And his point is like, this is just nickel and diming. Plus you want a, a cappuccino. So he goes for focusing on the big win, so to speak. So how do you balance the need to save more, which obviously is critical with the reality that saving a dollar here, four dollars there. I agree with almost everything he says there. I agree that. So, what's the best way to save significantly? Though? Well, I mean, look, in investing in yourself, and and that's easy to say. A lot of people, when they're young, they don't know exactly what that means. But really, developing your education or career and working on skills that will propel you to higher salaries matters a lot more um, in that growth trajectory than whether you save ten dollars for. I think he really hates avocado toast or coffee. Um, Listeners, it's actually pretty funny because Vice reached out to us on our advice for young people in graduation. If they were to give you $100 for what you should do, one was for something fun and then two was to to invest. So I asked Jeff what he, he said and we both agreed on number two, which was, of course, investing in one of Cambria's funds. But... Uh, I think we both said that our largest fund, which invests in the cheapest stock markets around the world. But the first one had a quite a different response because Jeff said, just go buy Bitcoin. 
And we deleted that one, by the way. And I, I said well, that would that would anger somebody. I said take the take the hundred bucks every morning. Get up a little earlier. Go buy a coffee. So that's five bucks each, unless you're in LA and get a single pour over, which was, I saw one the other day, which was ten dollars. Single origin pour over. And I, by the way, I actually went and I said, "Can I have a little milk in this?" And she says, "We don't we don't add milk to our coffee. It'll probably curdle." So we ask that you try it without any milk first. <laughs> so LA. Said, okay. So LA. It's okay. And then I also had a piece of chocolate cake with peanut butter. It was a Japanese coffee shop. Peanut butter, rice, circle in the middle and felt sick for about four hours. And then before going on Bloomberg, went to a Chinese restaurant that had peppercorns, the whatever, the Szechuan peppercorns that make your mouth go numb. But you are spiraling so if you listen, right now. if you listen to the, my interview on Bloomberg, it sounds like I'm slurring because like my entire <laughs> face was numb. Anyway, what are we talking about? Oh, yeah. So on Vice, so I said, spend the $100. So every morning, if you're a coffee drinker, go get a coffee. Wake up early, 30 minutes earlier, hour earlier, and go listen to an episode from one of the top five Wall Street Journal rated podcasts. Wait, I thought this advice was to be bad one. advice. No, it said fun. Advi- Number one was fun. Right. Fun or silly. So, okay, I misinterpreted. I yeah. thought this was sort of like And so points. I said, spend a hundred bucks each day, go listen to a podcast. So you could listen to two in an hour because you're listening at 2x speed. And so after 20 days, you will have listened to 40 hours worth of world-class investing ideas and i said that's free so what a great way to get started anyway i don't think anyone's going to get to my input on the vice article all right let's uh let's dig into some of these listener questions all right so tying back into commodities here meb what is the best way to include commodities in a portfolio specifically is it better to have an etf containing futures contracts or an etf containing commodities equities they're different you know i think if you want true commodity exposure, I think futures is the correct way to do it. I think you need to have reasonable expectations of returns. I think they'll be probably closer to bonds, but somewhere between bonds and stocks over time. You need to make sure you buy a commodity fund that has sort of the 2.0 rebalancing rules. So a lot of the early commodity funds were pretty, quote, dumb sort of ways to do it. And, And if you look at what we call what people call the dirty secret of indexing is all the indexes get front run from the S&P and Russell all the way down to commodity indices and these very basic commodity strategies it was a cost of a couple percentage points per year so they've they've updated to where there's all sorts of different rebouncing methodologies but being smart about it and having a more thoughtful but it's complicated so if you're an investor that doesn't trust that you'll be able to make that determination, just avoid them. We'll go buy a gold ETF and be done with it. Do you worry about roll yield issues? Well, so that's that's one determinant. And it changes over time too. So you want to have a fund methodology that tries to be thoughtful about it. But you can also argue that managed futures is a close cousin of long-only commodities, where most managed futures programs are very heavy in commodities futures. Granted, they'll go long and short, so you could buy both. Or you could buy a fund like one of ours that will concentrate in commodities if and when they're going up and commodity areas. So it just depends. But we love commodities, but we're a rarity as far as investment advisors that have kind of believed in them and stuck with them through this entire past cycle. 
I like them a lot more now in particular. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen a lot but of... Commodity equities is more... They're, they're more stock-like. Well, define that for the listeners just real quick to make sure they know the difference Stocks? here. Well, I mean, give me an example. Well, so if you buy Exxon or other companies that are in the commodity complex, they have some stock-like exposure and some commodity-like exposure. And it's more complicated, too, because some of them hedge. So they may not have the exact exposure to, to what oil is doing or wheat or whatever. Yeah. Well, it seems like you'd be getting a lot more insight. I would love a farmland ETF. You talk One day, about that every time. I get emails from all over the world now. And people are like, well, Meb, there's this farmland company in Argentina and Russia. Here's a private fund in the Baltics. What would you, I've heard a lot of smart guys say how long-term commodities aren't really a source of portfolio alpha. They're more of a way to increase your risk-adjusted return. They kind of smooth things out. Do you give that idea any credence? Well, I don't think commodities is alpha in the first place anyway, the same way I wouldn't think S&P 500 is alpha. Like it's a, it's a beta asset class where you're getting exposure. Now, I think there's areas where people misunderstand them. I think that you know, half the commodity returns are, are because they use futures is just the collateral yield of sitting in T-bills. So when T-bills were at zero, that is a lot different than when T-bills were at 5%, but that applies to every asset class, it applies to bonds too. When bonds are at 7% is different than when bonds are at one, but then the roll yield and the spot return and all that good stuff. I mean, I, I, I like them because they diversify and they zig and zag. It would never be a majority of my allocation are you going to over-rebalance given their valuation right now? Well, we do that automatically by the momentum and trend funds, but yeah. it's not based on pure mean reversion. But conceptually, you endorse the idea. Yeah. Okay. All right, let's move on. Next question. Obviously, historical returns from bonds, especially the last 40 years, will not be repeated in the future. How will you position yourself personally, not Trinity, but personally for the bond portion of your portfolio? As a follow-up, what are some viable, simple options for individual investors besides having a globally diversified bond portfolio? Or is global diversification the answer? Is the global risk somehow less risky than a domestic U.S. bond allocation? It's interesting that he starts the question with obviously, because I I actually don't think that that's obvious. If you look at Japan, for example, when their two-year, when their bond, 10-year bond went below 2%, it hasn't gone back above since and this is, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 years now. And it's been a great investment. Bonds have crushed stocks for a really long time there. By the way, do you know that Josh Brown tweeted this other day, and we used to talk about it and just incite people into rage. Bonds outperformed stocks for a quarter of a decade up to the period of like 2009. You know, And most people, when they talk about stocks for the long run, that's a pretty damn long time for bonds to be outperforming. And so... You know, bonds have, have been, yields have been ripping up, but can I foresee a world in which the 10 year goes from 3% back down to 210? Sure. We had negative interest rates in Europe. So, talk about an awesome investment. You buy the long bond here and yields go back to down to zero. That's an all time trade, right? Zero is even better, zero coupon bonds. So, I, I, I think you, everyone always follows the expectation that yields are coming up. They hear it every day. Fed, QE, yields got to go up, inflation, yada, yada. And it hasn't really been the case until about three or four months ago, when, or last year, I should say, sorry. Yields have started coming up. So, yes, do I believe that bond yields are probably going to hang out where they are now, slightly higher in 4% range? Yes, but would I ever bet on that? No. 
And so bonds historically have been a great diversifier, but it's not something you can count on. We say that about all asset classes. Bonds in general, I think on average, have a positive correlation with stocks. Not much. They oscillate all over the place, so it varies. But at, at various times, they're very high correlation and very low. So that having been said, I think there's a role that treasuries play in the portfolio that's distinct from foreign bonds. And foreign bonds, you can take the Vanguard approach and hedge them or not. I, I don't really care that much. I think it's sensible for sovereigns. But we wrote a paper on this many years ago about sovereign bonds and said, if you're going to do global bonds, you may as well, the same way that we say you shouldn't tilt to market cap weighted indexes in the US, you may as well tilt to value, in which case it's just carry. So you buy, and we have a fund that does this, but a, a high carry global portfolio, it's going to yield 5 6% right now, which by the way, the US is almost in the high carry bucket. It's darn close. If our fund would rebalance now, it'd probably be in the high yield category, which is kind of amazing. But that says more about the rest of the world than the US, where a lot of the G G8, G7 is yielding like half a percent on average, where even some I think are still negative, but, but not as much anymore because they weight the bonds by issuance. And so it's a, it's really kind of a nonsensical approach. If you think about it and historically tilting towards value and global bonds has added additional returns, but like right now you end up with a pretty wonky portfolio of Mexican and Russian and Brazilian and probably U S bonds and Turkish bonds, which have just been getting pounded. So it doesn't have the same role. I think it's, as U.S. bonds do. So U.S. bonds to me are still the core, but foreign bonds are also the largest asset class in the world. Well, I was about to say, if you look at the global market portfolio, what are we looking at for bonds? Is it 50%? Roughly. I mean, it's it's roughly half stocks and bonds, but a portion of that bonds is corporate. So it ends up probably looking more like 60-40 U.S. if you were to count corporate bonds as half stock, half bonds. Okay. So if we could, you know, peel back your head and look inside about your own personal sort of mm-hmm. you know, projections of uh, where markets are going, would you would you invest less? Would you downsize your allocation from 50%, say, to 40, 35, whatever, based upon fears of bonds? Are you like, nope, I no. don't have enough reason to worry. I'm going to keep it at GMP I like the John 50. Bogle. He says, I'm 50-50 stocks, bonds, because half the time I spend worrying I have too much in stocks, and half the time I worry that I have too much in bonds. So bonds to me are, are a totally reasonable asset class. All right. Despite um, the fact that no one, going back to our, our Twitter poll we did, no one understands the risks of bonds. And so if you look at 10-year treasuries historically, we did a Twitter poll and said, how much do you think U.S. bonds, 10-year bonds had declined after inflation over the past century? And almost everyone said 0 to 10% when the reality was it was over 50 over 50% listeners, that but that's because of inflation and particularly the sixties and seventies, you have these long gnawing inflation in a time when bond yields were below inflation, which is called financial repression, which we actually have been going through for the past number of years in the, here in the U S which we may not be anymore. Now the bond yields are back above 3% ish inflation seems to be lower, but that's, that's called financial repression. Right, let's switch to a CAPE question here. Star Capital Studies and your own book show that 10-year returns of low CAPE ratio countries are impressive and get better the lower the CAPE. Still, it doesn't tell if those returns occur gradually or if the path to this performance is just noise and cannot be predicted. 
If the path is noise, it would make sense to buy a cheap country ETF and wait at least 7 to 10 years. But your strategy rebalances every year and doesn't let your bulls run. Why? Why not hold longer 7 to 10 years in total? I think it's probably fine if you wanted to push the rebalance frequency out to multiple years. I don't know many people that have that much patience for that. But yearly, if you do it any more than yearly, it hurts. And even at yearly, there's not that much turnover. Usually it's like one or two countries go in and out, out of a dozen. So that's index sloth-like behavior. Now, are there a number of trading rules you could change to that if you wanted to? Sure. You could say, you know what, I'll invest in this basket. And if one goes below its moving average or but like there's a thousand ways to customize strategy your heart's content the way we did it was just pretty pretty simple but usually a lot of these countries need to double or triple before they come out of the index yeah i, mean, I think russia is gonna have to triple well i mean I, i'm not gonna get into the exact details of the methodology but i'm assuming you buy in a, a low cape and then it's gonna be in for a while potentially as the cape elevates to whatever the higher cape metric is i mean ireland out, was a good so. example you know that we owned that in the early days of our fund and it just ripped the face off and then eventually you know you sell it so another way to reduce turnover would be to have tolerance bands which means so like for example this isn't like cape strategy but for example if you invested in a stock in the top quartile of the universe so top 25% you say you buy them all in the top 25% but you only sell it once it drops out of the top half that way you reduce the turnover and you give it a little room to wiggle. Mm-hmm. A lot of strategies do that to reduce trading costs. Hmm. Not just in ours, but in other, other ideas and concepts. Next question. I recently read that 88% of companies that were in the S&P during the 1950s are no longer in business. If every company is eventually heading towards zero, why are so few people able to make money on the short side? Uh, shouldn't the ideal portfolio be long the global market portfolio with tilts to value and momentum? and short specific individual equities? Shorting's hard. It's hard for a number of reasons. Hard for implementation reasons. You gotta find a borrow, which then you have to pay for. You're running into the wind because US stocks have historically returned 10% a year. On top of that, shorting requires a lot of portfolio management discipline because theoretically you can lose infinite on a short, can double, triple, quadruple overnight. Whereas if you buy a stock, it usually only goes to zero. Although Chanos talks about this, people often say your, your upside is maxed out on a short at 100%. That's not actually true because you could continually double down as the stock goes down with more, with more margin and borrowing. Keep thinking about Einhorn. What? Which part? Well, I mean, in terms of uh, trying to short a lot of stuff that didn't work out and then kind of doubling down. So it's hard. It's just hard. Now, as far as the statistics of stocks, you know, you, you have these big outliers that have the monster return. So yes, theoretically, if you could come up with a short strategy that avoids those, but it's just, it's a lot of work. So to me, the bar, here's the bar. You go sit in bonds and you're going to make 3% a year. So can you find stocks to short that after costs of borrowing, after cost of transactions and everything, is going to beat 3% a year, maybe. It's just a really hard, hard what would, game. What would your personal screen be if you had to go short some I mean, there's, there's, a ton of, there's a ton of academic research that will pick terrible stocks. And in general, they underperform. And you could come up with a basket. But you got to remember, this goes back to Wes's old articles. said even 
God would get fired as an active manager because like, let's say you have that as a traditional portfolio. And even if it doesn't perform, it has periods where they just rip and this terrible junky basket of stocks will rip up 50% and you're dead, you know? So it's hard. Now I, I love the concept of shorting. I love the personality that gets attracted to shorting. Everyone's a little crazy. I think that if people can do it right, it's a huge potential value add. And a lot of people use it as their excuse to charge two and 20. A lot of the long short funds. I'm of the belief that almost none of them earn it or any good at it. So there's very few that are really truly exceptional. I just, it's tough. Kind of reminds me of uh, what Montier was talking about on the pod about using leverage in which he said that implies that you know something about the path of the mean reversion. In this case, shorting implies that you know kind of exactly what's going to happen and when. And if you get screwed on that trade, even if you get it right in the long term, if you get a quick volatility to the upside, I mean, you can get really hurt. I must have passed out during this episode because I've had like six people email me these like amazing quotes. I'm like, he said that? That's amazing. I don't remember that. I don't remember this point at all. Anyway, all I remembered was Winnie the Pooh. You were, you were just tied up on uh, talking about his uh, dress. Yeah. You loved his Hawaiian shirt. Yeah. Deadpool shoes. Keep going. What else we got? We know stocks are very volatile, especially when held for a year or less. But as the holding period increases to 5, 10, 20, 30 or more, the volatility of the stock portfolio decreases and the returns converge to around 6% annually. Knowing this, why not increase the allocation to an almost 90 to 100% stock portfolio? Buffett is 90% stocks, 10% bonds. People are living much longer and need a stock-heavy portfolio. I think it's insane. Uh, the reason being not the statistics of it. If you're Rip Van Winkle and you're going to wake up in 50 years, I think that's totally fine. Now, granted, I would also, again, rather buy a strategy that buys the cheapest stock markets around the world consistently. But what you just mentioned about West, the, the path dependence is because you're going to have to sit through a 50% decline at some point, maybe an 80%, maybe a 90%, unlikely. But it happens in many countries around the world. So I think Buffett's advice is actually terrible. I think it's really terrible advice because it ignores the fact that people can, can sit through it. And I just, I don't, I mean, but Munger says, he's like, look, you shouldn't be investing in stocks or he calls them quoted securities unless you can accept 50% drawdown. I just think if you diversify, you, it reduces your odds of that big of a drawdown. All right. We have a question about, uh, the there's a, there's, sorry, there's an old, I, I was one of the Ritholtz guys, either Batnick or Ben Carlson or someone where they put post a chart of Amazon and they joke, they're like, look, if you just bought a thousand dollars of Amazon or Netflix or whatever in 1990, you'd be worth $10 million. You know, I said, but also if you invested a thousand dollars in Amazon in 1990, actually, I don't even think they started till like late nineties, 99, whatever. You would also be a psychopath because you would have sat through like multiple 80% declines. Like no one does that. It's impossible. It's really hard. Next question is about the Trinity portfolios. Uh, it says, um, I've looked at your Trinity portfolios and noticed an allocation of 0.88% to a security. Why? Isn't the impact negligible? Potentially, but if you could ask the same question about the S&P. It's like, why allocate to the S&P when the 500th company is only representing is 0.01%? So you're getting, you're, what you're trying to achieve eventually is that you have a portfolio that reflects the global market portfolio and you actually own 20, 30,000 securities around the world. 
So you could implement that portfolio with two funds, by the way. So then it's a question of just granular and tax harvesting and all a bunch of other ideas. But yeah, you want to buy two funds and, and kind of do it. That's fine too. But the question is actually pretty fair in the sense that if you're doing an allocation with discrete assets, you need to add something with like 5% or larger. Otherwise it's really hard for it to make a difference for like a new asset or asset class. But let's say you had a category where you allocate to long short equity managers with 10%. Well, is it totally fine to spread that 10% across 10 or 20 managers? Sure. But the whole point being, are you adding to long short equity with 10% or not? It's a different question. Last question. By the way, we had like a dozen Twitter questions, but my phone died. So we'll get to them next radio show. (laughs) It's time for a new phone. I've heard you complaining about that one for a while. All right. Using websites like Portfolio Visualizer, backtesting trend following using various moving averages can produce better returns. For example, using an eight-month simple moving average outperformed the 10-month simple moving average for five asset classes. So wouldn't it be better to use the eight-month back-tested moving average? Is this data mining? I think that's the, it, that's it would, the question, really. It's, it's literally the definition of data mining. You know, we, when we published our first white paper, 2005, six, we said, look, and we used the 10-month simple moving average. We said, this doesn't have the best risk or return parameter, or risk and return statistics for any of them but it has broad parameter stability. So maybe the eight did best here and the six did best there. And define, the did best. define parameter stability. For parameter everybody. stability is like, if you think of a, a broad mountaintop, not like a Teton's peak, but kind of like a big plateau where everything in this general vicinity would work. That's something you want. And you want it to work on as many markets as possible and many different timeframes as possible. If you find some strategy that only works in one market and nothing around it works and it doesn't work in other markets or time periods, that's probably data mining. Like we were joking the other day, we said, hey, you know what works amazing in Bitcoin? Seven day moving average. And it does, by the way, fantastic way to trade it. But is that going to work in the future? I have no idea. I'm staying away from hodling. All right. Well, that's it in terms of the Q&A. Anything pressing on your mind? Can you remember any questions that came in that you want to address before we sign out? We'll, we'll, we'll save them all for radio episode next one. All right. Well, any final sign-off before you uh, hit Europe? Yeah, guys. Uh, summertime. So you guys got any good research ideas, questions, papers, thoughts? Send them over. We got some time brewing and some, some people that want to work on some new research projects. So, so fire them over. If uh, you guys got any more questions, we'll add to the to mailbag. Feedback at com. Leave us a review. We love reading them. Check out the new podcast app we're using which is breaker and uh, otherwise you can find all the shows show notes everything else mebfaber.com forward slash podcast and if you love the show share it with some friends take a hundred bucks go have some coffees get an mba in investing thanks for listening friends and good investing Mm